If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast today on the pod. The Portuguese model, Portugal has second thoughts for decriminalizing hard drug use. What lessons are there for BC? Plus, policy drift. Forget Ken Sim shotgunning a beer. What's the mayor actually accomplished so far with a supermajority on council? Plus, whatever happened to BC's LNG dreams? And we'll have the latest on Madonna's on-again, off-again world tour. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. The mayor, of course, who promises Vancouver can walk with swagger once again. Now, over the weekend, a video surfaced on social media where uh, Mayor Ken Sim was at the Catsilano street party. Now, in the video, Mayor Ken Sim, along with a couple of other men who were in the in the visual, one of them happened to be Councillor Mike Klassen, uh, they were shotgunning a beer. Uh, now, some have criticized the mayor, others have said it was all done in fun. Take a listen. There we go. This is the shotgun city. like that shotgun city. Now, no one's complaining about, you know, what happened uh, at the festival, but I think it does raise one question. October will be the anniversary of when uh, Ken Sim and his party uh, won a supermajority. What have they done since then? October 15th, I think it was election day. Uh, Sure, it's been a short time. It hasn't been a year yet. Lots to go still. But for a mayor who doesn't wear a suit to work, as he proudly says, he doesn't wear a suit and tie, he was very casually dressed, he chugs beer, as we heard there, and he promises to bring the city swagger back, we get that. We get that uh, different profile of a mayor. But what about his policy successes? What's he done uh, at the council level? And joining me now to discuss the issue is Francis Bula, political contributor uh, for The Globe and Mail. Francis, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> I didn't think I'd be calling you over uh, uh, the mayor shotgunning a drink at the Cozzolano street party, but here we are. Uh, what did you think of it? What was your reaction when you heard about it? Well, it kind of fits in in a way with the image that he's been projecting. Um, you know, I'm cool. I'm bringing fun back to the city. Maybe not the kind of fun necessarily everyone is into, but a certain type of fun. Uh, you know, I think, uh, I, you or someone else called it a sort of a tech bro look and, and yeah, there was a bit of that. So, I mean, I, I, I think he's trying to, you know, project a positive image. Mayors like to do that and say, our city is great and you can have a good time here. I'm not sure how well the shotgunning thing goes over. Yeah. <laughs> the con these days over drinking in public, drinking in the parks, people doing uh, drugs in the parks and so on. Yeah, I'm not sure that's the kind of fun image you necessarily want to convey. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure he was egged on uh, by the crowd there, and uh, I guess to a certain degree one could argue uh, if if that's what the room was wanting, that's what the room was wanting. But I, I think this actually plays to a bigger conversation. Well, I hope he never goes to a strip club. 
from. <laughs> I think that should be a given, and you're the mayor of Vancouver, let's <laughs> hope. But let's, uh, you know, when I thought saw that, I sort of thought about, you know, the position he's in right now, not just being mayor, but he has a supermajority on council, and I know he had promised 100 police officers, 100 mental health nurses, which... Uh, they've moved forward on, the budget's there, uh, it just won't happen right away, but they're in the process. So it's it's moving forward, they're going to hire them. But in regards to what he represents, there's also been a significant property tax increase uh, in Vancouver, over 10%. Uh, never, No one, out, I think, expected that from a Ken Sim administration. Yes, they uh, you know got rid of the parking tax and some of these annoying little paper cup fees and that kind of thing. But I always figure a, a government that has a supermajority or a majority gets things done the first couple of years, and then you start thinking about the next election preparing for it. Uh, so far, it hasn't been a year yet, but we're getting there. There hasn't been a lot that I think they can point to that's been accomplished, or maybe I'm wrong. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, it is hard to come in and, uh, you know, upend things, especially... There are 6,000 employees at the city, and so that's, you know, quite a freighter to be turning in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is difficult, but, you know, this is like the third big sweep, you know, um, kind of council I've seen. And when I think about it, when Larry Campbell came in in 2002, I mean, he had got a supervised injection site going within a year, which is something he'd promised, and he just put on enormous pressure, went to Ottawa for it and everything, and also legalized basement suites everywhere in the city. There'd be massive controversies over it, and just, you know, sort of with the stroke of the pen one day, he and his council voted and said, yep, they're all legal now, uh, which was a pretty big housing move. And then when Gregor Robertson came in, um, well, the first thing they did was fire Judy Rogers and put in Penny Ballum, who, whatever you think of her, I mean, she brought in big changes uh, and they, uh, you know, uh, brought in a huge focus on sustainability and hired a new uh, uh, deputy um, uh, who would focus very much on sustainability, and he started a roundtable on tackling homelessness. And, you know, he didn't wipe out homelessness in Vancouver, as he had promised, but um, there were some definite accomplishments. They got winter, the province to agree to fund winter shelters. Uh, you know, they put a lot of pressure on the province and on private groups as well to come up with money for shelters and for housing. So... Um, there were some definite accomplishments, even though like the, the, the things that the city are, is grappling with, housing, social issues, those are not things that are going to get solved overnight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I know every new council has new people in it. Do you think there's a bit of policy drift with this one? I mean, they had a chief of staff, a new chief of staff, and those things happen, I get that. But do you think uh, this is a question of just being over, you know, having a lot to do, or is this a case, do you think, there is a bit of a policy drift on from this group? Well, I think that they are not willing to, they don't have someone strong enough to say, we're going to do this, we don't care what staff says. I think they're feeling a bit stymied by the, you know, staff coming back and saying, no, we can't do this, that there, we need to work more on this, or there has to be more policy work done on this. Uh, and, um, you know, I think if there were, a, 
you know, Ken Sim never had strong policy. He didn't. Mm-hmm. He'd be probably be the first one to admit it. Well, maybe he wouldn't actually. But anyway, he didn't have a strong policy. It was more just like, I'm going to bring change. Uh, and the big focus was 100 police officers, 100 nurses. Um, but there's, there doesn't seem to be anyone either in the mayor's office or on council who's willing to say, okay, let's make a big, bold move on housing. Let's just say six plexes everywhere right now. Like, we don't have to go through a lot of, you know, convoluted hearings and this and that and everything else. We see what the surveys say. We see what the need is. Let's just do it. Like, And it wouldn't have to be something that solves all the housing issues, but something, like, kind of quick and visible. Um, you know, because right now what we're seeing is things like, oh, we got the fountains opened up, you know, or mm-hmm. we we went out and painted over graffiti. Or we chugged beer at the Catalano Festival. Like, those are not big moves. No, no, they're not. I mean, i got to hand it to them. Beyond um, uh, the Catalano Street Party uh, and many other community events, I think one thing this group does is a lot of uh, dinners and lunches and festivals, and they're they're physically out there meeting people and doing all those types of things. But somewhere, in the, uh, somewhere along the way, as you say, you have to get in there and start governing and making some of these decisions, because ultimately it's your policy decisions that actually leave a long-term mark uh, in regards to if you want to make, make any changes. Do you think Ken Sim's enjoying, enjoy, beyond the beer, do you think he's enjoying the governance side at all, or do you think this is bores him? Um, I haven't seen signs that he's a policy wonk of any description, you know, not the way, I mean, Larry Campbell wasn't either. He had a few things he wanted to do, and other than that, like he was so totally bored by policy, you know, mm-hmm. like you could see him fall asleep in front of you. But um, uh, he's not a policy wonk the way Gregor Robertson was, or certainly not the way Kennedy Stewart was. That's okay if he had strong people around him who were, you know, that the mayor doesn't have to be everything as long as you've got a strong team. But I, I don't see anyone on the team, either staff or council yet, uh, and there could be things going on in the background for sure that I don't know about, but I don't see it yet. Like someone who's coming up with big, strong policy ideas, you know, and one of their other things was, you know, resolving the building permit thing. Well, you know, it seems as much of a mess as ever. And then, you know, there's Vancouver, like many other cities, is dealing with the fact that building permits are actually declining because, you know, a lot of builders are saying we can't actually build right now. Like the financing costs are out of this world and mm-hmm. uh, so is labor and materials. Um, so we're not seeing visible progress and we're not seeing a big policy move. And so it tends, it's tending to be a bit, I, I'm, I've, I'm always critical when people use this word, but I'm going to use it anyway. A bit performative. Hmm. You know, like we're showing that we're a jolly, happy city and we care about things. But but what's actually being done, it's it's not that clear. Yeah, and I, I I'll give the benefit of the doubt. It's still early, but, you know, when I saw the beer checking, I kind of thought, you know, you got a year. Year will be October, and you've done a couple things. But you yeah. gotta, you gotta. When you make those big bold decisions, you gotta prepare them and be ready to go. And I'm not sure how prepared they are. Well, so. exactly. And and you know, you made a really good point that I hadn't thought about before. But yeah, when you have a super majority, that's that. Your first year is when you can do things because you know you can inflict a lot of pain, and hope 
but people will have forgotten about it by the time the election rolls around in four years. So, mm-hmm. Or they'll have adjusted, or they'll have seen the world isn't coming to an end. Um, but, you know, kind of the biggest move they made, as you said, was the 10% tax increase. I mean, they are showing that they're willing to approve housing, like 105 Kiefer. I think there's other things coming along that they are going to approve. But just approving things already in the system, I'm not sure that sends people a message that they're making a big move on housing. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you know, it, it as, a, as the... The party that is the opposite of Kennedy Stewart or Gregor Robertson, a 10.7% property tax increase is not going to be anything that's going to sell and doesn't differentiate differentiate you as the fiscal conservatives, that's for sure. So, you know, I thought that was a right. big, big mistake. Not, you know, at the very least, BC, well, you could defer some yeah, of those costs, perhaps say, look, we're not spending it this year. I just don't know how they go to their people. I know it was late in the term, late in the budgetary process, but I don't know how you say yes to 10.7%. I just don't get it. Well, it, I think it could be more easily accepted if it was accompanied by, and it's funding this really big move that we know you all want. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I'd i have a hard time saying what that is myself, and I think a lot of people would. So, so then that's harder to take if you feel like, Oh my God, like it's just basic operating expenses, and this is just going to keep going forever. You can see where people get a bit panicky feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Final question to you uh, Have you ever shotgunned uh, a beer? Oh, no, but I don't claim to be a saint. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe I drank an entire bottle of scotch when I was 16 and have lived, you know, have regretted it ever since. But no, I, I haven't shotgunned a beer. I can tell you I have, but it was a prerequisite when you come out of the Williams Lake. I'll tell you that much. There you go. Oh, yeah. Well, of course. Well, I worked on commercial fishing boats, so we had a kind of different level of uh, misbehavior. Absolutely. Francis, thank you so for your time. Great chatting with you. Okay, nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Madonna is officially on the men following a bacterial infection that landed her in the hospital for several days uh, last month. Uh, the Queen of Pop shared a statement uh, on her um, Instagram today uh, thanking her supporters for their positive energy and prayers and healing and encouragement. Now, prior to her hospitalization, uh, Madonna had been in rehearsals for her celebration tour, which was slated to kick off this Saturday Uh, in Vancouver. Uh, She let it be known today that current plan is to open the tour in Europe in October 
and reschedule the entire North American leg uh, at an unspecified date, which uh, in the grand scheme of things is good news. But joining me now to talk a little bit about probably some disappointment, I would guess if you're a Madonna fan, which our next guest is, Caitlin Ozanski is a global BC traffic anchor, but as I said, also a huge, huge Madonna fan. And she joins us now. Caitlin, thank you. Thanks so much for having me here. Any uh, time I can talk Madonna, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, how, uh, how excited were you for this tour when it was first announced? I get excited, but I also get a lot of stress because, uh, you know, 40 years celebration, this is going to be a best of tour. So getting those tickets is always hard. I want the best tickets and they're also really expensive as well. So mm-hmm. I'm excited, but there's also a lot of stress involved. Uh, but I was really looking forward to her, especially opening her tour in, right here in Vancouver. So that was really special. Yeah. I'm curious, um, were you checking last week in regards to oh, the situation? Oh, I check every single day. Oh, you like, did? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I was, we were on there with friends. We're checking like everything we could think of. We're refreshing her social media, her managers, Ticketmaster, Live Nation, mm-hmm. just looking for an answer because we hadn't seen anything since the original post went that, out. That's got to be a bit frustrating because you get the news off a tweet. I think it was her manager initially, was it that's not? That's right. Yeah. Guy Siri. Yeah. And then, and then you hope the offic- official ticket folks, Ticketmaster would announce something or Live Nation. It's just sort of all contradictory, wasn't it? They're still selling tickets at one point. Oh, it, this morning they were. I, oh, this they mor- were. I did my daily check. Yeah. And, yeah. And then it was this afternoon. And now they've put everything to being postponed because Madonna herself had, had come out with that announcement. So, um, yeah. And they were actually sending out, well, it was automated emails to people that had bought tickets saying, get ready. <laughs> Your show's coming yeah. up in less than a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, was this the only part of the tour you're going to go to? Or are you like- No, I had Seattle and uh, LA for uh, January. Oh, you're hardcore. Yeah. Yeah, and I was hoping to like get some along the way. And if there was a weekend that I could make it work, I was. I'm going to be in Toronto the same time, and hopefully just to get some last minute tickets. So, yeah. Wow. Now, <laughs> what is it uh, about Madonna you really love? Uh, just everything she represents. Like she's not gonna take anything from anybody. Be who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just, I loved her from a young age. She just, every time I see her, like talking about her, I get goosebumps. It, she's just an inspiration. So Dave one, you've been a fan. Yeah. Since I was little. Favorite artist? A hundred percent. Yeah. Number one. Uh, what is it? Do you think, because you and I were talking about this off air and, and uh, she turns 65 next month. Yeah. Right. And you've got Rolling Stones who've been touring for many, many years. Uh, you know, the Bruce Springsteen's of the world, they were to announce the huge sellout. There aren't many young artists, even mid-career artists, that can fill up BC plays like Madonna can. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Well, she's been around for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And she's also kind of paved the way for a lot of young artists. And I know, like, I could get a lot of flack for saying this, but I think a lot of artists definitely owe her their career probably to her because things that you can get away with now, song lyrics, uh, the way people, uh, musicians are presenting themselves, I think, like, and even the way that shows are done now, they're these huge spectacles. Madonna, I mean, Blonde Ambition in 1990 broke the barriers for all that. So she was kind of the leader. Mm-hmm. And I think people really respect that. And, and, I, and as much as you wish for, uh, you know, fairness and equality, 
it is still an industry geared more towards men. You don't see generally women touring at this age, right? I mean, there are some, but yeah, not a lot. Yeah, and she does get a lot of flack for things that she does, or yeah. she shouldn't, you know, she's 65. She shouldn't be doing, you know, this anymore. She shouldn't be wearing that anymore. But nobody says anything when it's like Mick Jagger, you know, or strutting anyway. across the stage, <laughs> tight leather pants. So. Exactly, exactly. Um, it, now, you were also mentioning during the break, what other concerts are you going to? This year? Oh, yeah. um, I'm going to see... I love retro. I grew up yeah. with uh, older siblings, so huge uh, musical influence. So Tears for Fears. That is great. Yeah. Depeche Mode. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> yeah. I got to work. I got to work really hard to no support kidding. this habit. I mean, yeah. that's, that's like a Gen X. I mean, Springsteen, you could say Boomer as well, but that's like a Gen X playlist you just well, gave me there. Well, also... I was going to pass on Bruce Springsteen, but I just thought everybody's getting a little bit older and you just never know. That is true. And I think one could argue, and it's not just music, COVID's kind of sort of thrust that on all of us and that what's life really about Yeah, and what matters and you're not going to always have the time you think you have. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And every, it feels like every con, every band, musician, singers, all going on tour this year to make up for those lost years. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that's why it's filling up. I just saw something on BC One this morning. I think um, somebody else was just wrapping up their concert. Oh, Elton, Elton John. John. Elton yeah. John was yeah. right. Yeah. And it was packed. The, the footage is amazing. He's so. been on tour since like 2018. <laughs> Well, you know what? People are watching them. They love it. So yep. there you go. Well, I'm really uh, saddened to hear that uh, Madonna isn't here this Saturday, but they'll reschedule. And I hope you can make it to that to that uh, particular show. And of course, Seattle and Los Angeles as yes, well. Yes, we'll be definitely keeping an eye peeled to that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It was really nice meeting you too. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate uh, it. All right. That's Caitlin Zansky. She's a Gold BC traffic anchor. And I'm going to call her a Madonna super fan, but she's fabulous. Uh, let's talk about drug decriminalization and the Portugal model. Uh, now, in the early 1990s, Portugal was in the midst of a heroin and HIV crisis. Approximately 1% of their 10 million people uh, had heroin addiction, and the country held the highest rates uh, of HIV infection uh, in the European Union as well. Well, Portugal did something about it. In 2001, they decriminalized drugs, and the shift there from a criminal approach to a public health approach uh, took effect, the so-called uh, Portugal model. Now, the uh, country or the government decided at that point to throw out punishment-driven policies in favor of harm reduction by decriminalizing consumption of all drugs for personal use, including the purchase and possession of 10 days of supplies. Now, in many ways, we've been having that conversation to a certain degree here uh, in British Columbia and across Canada. Uh, you've uh, heard many mayors and city councillors also talking about their concerns uh, over uh, drug use uh, in parks and other public facilities. Well, over the weekend, the Washington Post had a very interesting article looking at the Portugal mo model. Uh, and what they basically, in the thrust of that article, touched upon was that uh, while Portugal was a model for progressive jurisdictions around the world, there has been some second thought in regards to what has been introduced. Uh, the article states, quote, police are less motivated to register people who misuse drugs and there are year-long waits for state-funded rehabilitation treatments, even as a number of people 
people seeking to help seeking help has fallen dramatically. Uh, the return in force of visible urban drug use, meanwhile, is leading the mayor and others here, to, mayors uh, and uh, and others here, to ask an explosive question: Is it time to reconsider this country's global globally hailed? Uh, drug model. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about the Portugal model and the context of British Columbia is Dr. Julian Summers. He's SFU's disting- distinguished professor and clinical psychologist. Dr. Summers, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you, Jazz. Uh, I, was, I read this article with, um, I mean, I was very much interested in it just because of the broader conversation uh, here in British Columbia. I mean, for many years, been hearing about the Portugal model. I'm very curious, um, you've read the article, your thoughts overall on what you think is transpiring and happening in Portugal and what, what lessons there are for British Columbia. Well, th- thank you for that. It's an ex- That's an expansive uh, uh, topic because in part the um, the issues that, that you're referring to unfolded over a roughly 25-year period from mm-hmm. a couple of years before the national strategy through the global financial crisis, which had uh, effects on, on countries and programs around the world, including here in BC, up to the present day. But a, a key thing that I'd point out for, for starters is that the, um, uh, the investment that Portugal was making in making their initial successes possible has been cut to about 20% in financial terms of what it was over this period with the result that responsibilities for implementing the services and supports that contributed to their change were effectively downloaded to towns and cities. And with that, we get something much closer to what we see in towns and cities around B.C., including mayors saying, hey, this decriminalization thing is not working for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, but it's important to just to keep in mind that the key components of their early success were, I think, two things. One is this very robust commitment financially and in a coordinated way to ensuring that people who were on the streets using drugs had clear avenues to support their social reintegration. That's that's the term they use, Mm -hmm. number one. The second is that they arrived at that point after several years of intense discussion as a nation, and this is reflected in the text of their national strategy, which is available online in English, But it's very clear that that's, I think, a a key similarity to B.C. right now is that, you know, I don't remember a time in my in my adult life uh, when we've been more concerned as a as a population with figuring out what the heck is going on and how can we make a difference. And that's where they were about 25 years ago. So in in this, uh, based on what you're saying here, uh, this is a failure and, and maybe that's too strong a word at the national level in Portugal where they've walked away financially from these very various programs they, they initially funded and downloaded on, 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 the, on the cities? Yes. To give you an example, when they started, so the, the Portuguese national strategy, and I, I encourage listeners that are into this to have a look online, the, the text is very clearly against um, drug use as a as a as an element of well-being. They're not against drug use per se. They're certainly not against drug users. So that's part of the reason why the emphasis on not making this a responsibility of the criminal justice sector. But they but they were adamant that the solution was social reintegration. And so, one of the areas that they invested in were therapeutic communities. 
and many of the people who are on the streets have been for many years um, are going to need a, a sustained period of time. So these are places where people could go for up to two years, learn basically new daily habits, but also learn vocations and skills that would enable them to support themselves when they leave. And they had 63 of these therapeutic communities as part of their response. That has mm-hmm. withered tremendously over time. Here in BC, we have, I mean, I don't want to say zero because there are people doing the work of therapeutic communities, but it's a tiny, tiny number. And, and by comparison, we've got over 40 drug consumption sites. Portugal had zero for well over a decade and during all of the years when they were making their, their massive turnaround. Again, because when you need when a, when a community needs consumption sites, that signifies that they have people who are not only using drugs but but likely don't have safe places of their own to live in and to and to consume those drugs. But if you're if you're committed right off the bat to social reintegration, then the idea of having a population of people you know in substandard or or living on the street using drugs is a non-starter at the get-go, and that's where they were. Um, so the funding for that array of resources, which, which enabled police using their authority as a, uh, with a, administrative sanctions mm-hmm. to go directly up to drug users, take them to dissuasion commissions, and the dissuasion commissions could support people to, fl- to move through to various ways in which they could, they could begin that journey or take the next step in that journey of integration. As, as you would have read in the Washington Post article, police are now saying, you know, why bother? Like the, the, the journalists tracked police walking right past people consuming on the street. And they said, well, look, we could intervene, but there's no point because there's no place for them to go to. They'll be back on the street you know, before we know it. That's what we hear from police in B.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to treatment itself, uh, can you where does that fit within in, within Portugal's model? Like, it, it, and, you know, people listening to this are going to go, okay, where's the account? Where's the accountability? Where's sort of you do the the crime? You should be responsible for it, number one. But can you put that con- provide some context for our listeners in regards to this model when it comes to treatment and in regards to punishment? In in, in, in some cases, where let's say somebody does commit a crime because they're trying to, 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 to raise money to buy drugs. Yeah. Um, well, in some ways, it's, it's, I think it's a little bit difficult uh, to, to um, um, draw strong parallels because an important part of the backstory is that a sufficient number of people in Portugal agreed, reached consensus mm-hmm. in the late 90s that use of drugs as a, a you know a matter of a, a, a person's uh, lifestyle and um, dis- disconnected from other parts of society is not something that we want, and so they they made a very clear uh, turn toward as again I'm using this term their term social reintegration, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, if if we provide people with 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 the, sort of the voluntary a voluntary access to uh, safe and supported housing, um, a means of establishing uh, a vocation or reestablishing a vocation, um, we're we're not and they were not um, opposed to drug use per se. They they were opposed to to drug use. In, in the context of, of being socially isolated and, and homeless and unemployed, et cetera. 
Um, so they provided pathways for people to choose through the dissuasion commissions. And essentially, if you provide enough pathways for people to choose from, the vast majority will choose those pathways. And by the way, we had an opportunity to do something similar in Vancouver, where we could offer people choices of housing and access to various supports. And they over, they did choose them. Every single person that we met with and offered this, mm-hmm. this array of options, he chose them. So people will make choices in their own interests. And when they make those choices, they are now in contact with things that they value enough to invest in their own health. And they take steps to use drugs less riskily. They've, they're thinking about, gosh, I could be reconnected with my kids. I could reestablish my own employment. And, and those, the opportunities to pursue those things start to be what motivates them to take further steps in their wellness. Now, if people refuse, are, you know, are, are, are opposed to those things, as, as, will, as will occasionally happen, Portuguese law allowed police to take next steps and apply enforcement so there is a, 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 a proverbial stick available in the legislation. But what it demonstrates and what we, what we found as well is that if we provide the right array of carrots, the use of the stick becomes relatively seldom. My final question to you, uh, is this a success still or do you think this is a, a, a tale of caution where it started off well? but there was drift and you're now seeing a potentially a decline in this very program or this very philosophy because of, uh, you know, politicians taking their eye off the ball and fundamentally, you know, not providing the proper funding that they initially had. I, I think you've summed it up. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it remi- at, the, at the individual level, it, it reminds me a little bit of, of yo-yo dieting. You, you see some gains you kind of you know lose a little bit of of, of your uh, commitment to the things that have realized those gains for you. Pretty soon, you know, but before you know it, you're you're back where you started, and now you've got to rethink huh, how did how did I make those gains and where did I go wrong? Another comparison, I'll give you a second one, is deinstitutionalization, which we committed to, like many places, uh, a huge shift through the 70s and 80s. And mm-hmm. now, these many years later, many people are saying, "Gosh, you know, I mean, maybe we should reopen the institution because that because look at look at." But the problem isn't the institutionalization. The problem is our failure to follow through and and deliver the resources that that were the justification for deinstitutionalization. So, your summary, I think, is 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 accurate, and it's it's the same one that the journalists in the Post uh, make, I, I believe. Which is, it is, which is not that decriminalization should now be questioned as a failure. What, what the Portuguese appear to have lost sight of and what's clear in the financial cuts are the elements of their plan that enable decriminalization to be a viable uh, uh, regulatory scheme for their population. It's not, it's not about the supply. We're fixated on supply here in D.C. What we need to be focused on instead is demand to a far greater degree. And that's, what, that's where Portugal really focused on. So- social reintegration is synonymous with demand reduction. 
And if you do that, you can have decriminalized possession because there won't it won't amount to that that much of a problem in the population when we don't enable people to be socially integrated, when we lose track of of the importance of of addressing demand for addictive drugs, then having uh, a liberalized laws relating to possession can result in greater harms. So we we, we need to be aware of this kind of balance. Dr. Summers, uh, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed our conversation as always. Me too, Jazz. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Today, we have energy experts, policymakers, elected officials, and CEOs from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and Europe converging on the Vancouver Convention Centre for a global liquefied natural gas conference. Now, this global LNG conference uh, will run from Monday to Thursday here uh, in Vancouver. It's held every three years, so it's a big deal in the energy sector. Uh, And Vancouver wasn't expected to uh, host this particular event. It was originally scheduled to be in St. Petersburg, Russia, and of course, that all went sideways after Mr. Putin decide, decided to invade Ukraine. So Vancouver came in and, and is now hosting that conference. It's going to have up to 15,000 uh, attendees, so a really big deal. And as you all know, uh, we have one large-scale uh, LNG project, LNG Canada, being constructed right now. We just heard the uh, the other day it's about 80 85% complete. It, uh, in, uh, once completed, it's a $36 billion investment uh, here in British Columbia. It's the largest private sector investment in the history of Canada as well, but it speaks to the importance for energy, for Asia, for the rest of the world. And joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, that project, but more importantly, just LNG and First Nations community is Crystal Smith. She's a chief counselor with the Heisla First Nation, which is uh, located just outside Kitimat, BC. Crystal, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. You and I have met uh, uh, many times before. Uh, let's talk first and foremost about uh, your community. There's the Heisla community next door to uh, Kitimat City. Can you give me a sense of what the community has been like over the last couple of years? Because, you know, when we talk about this big project, it's $36 billion. But you put all of that into a community like Heisla and Kitimat, it's significant. What's it been like uh, up there? It's been absolutely inspirational uh, to see the changes that have occurred over the last five to ten years. Uh, it's specifically in, in my community and also in, in Kitimat is the essentially the revitalization of the economy uh, within our territory. Our, our community isn't new to industrial development. We've had a aluminum smelter, a pulp and paper mill, and a methanol plant all operating in our in our territory at one at one moment. And unfortunately, two of those commodities, the two of those industries decided to leave uh, Kitimat 
thus leaving it in a in a very um, drastic state in in, mm-hmm. in regards to every aspect of of what makes up a community. Uh, people left, uh, schools closed, uh, opportunity was essentially lost within our territory, mm-hmm. and to see a new industry come into our community has definitely revitalized our our entire economy, uh, bringing more people into Kitimat. And, and essentially for the, from the Haiza perspective, providing opportunity for real opportunity for our people to, to find careers. Mm-hmm. And it's not only within the LNG industry that we're seeing the, the impact and, and the focus. We're seeing our, our people become lawyers, nurses, uh, ambitions of coming, becoming doctors. It's been absolutely uh, inspiring to to be a part of and to witness. What was it like 10, 15 years ago before any conversation around um, LNG? Uh, how did your community look at resource projects, doing businesses with uh, corporations and companies, individuals that came to you? Give me a sense, of, a snapshot of what that looked like. It, it was definitely a, a, a time that where Indigenous communities were, were essentially a part of conversations that never really came to fruition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would say that the trust factor for, for any type of proponent coming into Indigenous communities was, was definitely uh, one that was uh, not taken as, as constructive because we'd been promised quite a few opportunities and, and it never uh, came to fruition. Did you, t- did you, did you trust, did you, did you trust companies? Not in the sense of just being let down, but did you, and they're coming to you as capitalists, as people with an idea, uh, you know, something that's for profit. Did you trust them culturally? I, I would say no, we, we generally didn't. As, as I stated in my opening comments, we, we weren't new to industrial development. Mm-hmm. Our, our leaders prior to, uh, 10 years ago, uh, weren't provided the, the, the resources that we are today mm-hmm. uh, in regards to that uh, expert help, even the, the guidance of uh, lawyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in, in regards to any type of um, trust uh, factor, it was, it was very limited in, in regards to the acceptance of any type of development that was, that was occurring in our territory. Mm-hmm. Now, when I look at a plant like LNG Canada's and somebody sitting in the city goes, well, that's well and good. How does that help us here in, in the lower mainland? Uh, you, you sometimes have to remember those projects of that size. I mean, that could be potentially, and I don't know the deal that's been signed because it, it is, uh, you know, signed with that company. But, you know, you're looking at $300 million to half a billion dollars a year coming to provincial or government governments collectively in taxes from one LNG plant. Um, now, there's a separate project called Cedar LNG. Walk me through. Now, this is the pipeline that's being built. You've got LNG Canada. You've got a big, big facility. But... You, uh, being the Heisler First Nation, also negotiated a deal that once that pipeline is built, there's an offtake agreement. And as a community, you want to build a separate LNG plant, smaller one. By small, I mean it's not $36 billion, it's $3 billion, maybe $2 billion yes. or something like that. Explain that to me. Uh, so we were fortunate enough to, to negotiate, successfully negotiate uh, and, and give credit to, to our previous leaders and, and consultants and lawyers that helped us get to this point. Uh, we successfully negotiated for our MMCF of capacity off the coastal gasoline uh, pipeline uh, to feed a facility uh, that was 
intended to be majority owned by Haisla Nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were able to do that and secure uh, partnerships that helped us advance uh, the project to where it is. And, and our our partners, Pemina Pipeline Corporation, has, has definitely taken our project to, to where it's at today. We obtained our environmental assessment certification from both the province and the federal government in March. And now we're, we're moving towards uh, what we are optimistic to be a positive final investment decision later this year. That's going to be huge. I mean, you're going to have two LNG facilities there. Um, there's been talk of the Nishka as well, uh, being involved in LNG. Give me a sense of what there has been opposition to LNG. People will say, look, it's natural gas. It burns 45% cleaner than coal, but it's still a fossil fuel, and we need to get off of it. Uh, yet you have First Nations communities like yours, High Slim. You've got uh, Nishka, who also want to look at these types of developments. Uh, uh, give me a sense of the conver- internal conversations in your community, how you square that circle, because you can talk about nature, you can talk about the earth. Um, and you know, First Nations communities, my sense of them, when I visited up north is the, that's part of the broader conversation. How does this fit in and this development fit into our broader values? Speak to me a little bit about how your community, and I don't know you don't want to speak for the Nishka, but broader First Nations communities get to a yes today based on those, that broader conversation. I've, I've uh, often alluded to our, our cultural values always have taught us as Indigenous communities in one way or another to, to protect and, and to uh, honour our lands that, that we live on. Uh, it, if you think in a global context... And, and a global a, a global mindset, our communities and our territories aren't protected from what is occurring in, say, Asia. Uh, anything that that happens globally, our our territories are are impacted immensely when it comes to any type of salmon stock or or ulican stocks, and we we feel that in in that conversation that although LNG is is still a fossil fuel we are doing our portion of taking care of our territories and taking care of the earth uh, by helping be a part of solutions when it comes to offsetting the, mm-hmm. the emissions burn that are that are created by coal, mm-hmm. by producing LNG in our territories to, to be a part of solutions that, that will take care of our future generations. Mm-hmm. The activist community, or those that have opposed uh, resource development, um, have always had a strong relationship with First Nations communities. Uh, and they may not, they, I know they wouldn't appreciate what you're saying or other First Nations leaders who are, whether they're working in the oil sands, whether it be LNG, uh, could be coal as well. Uh, is that relationship, and I've talked to Ellis Ross, uh, MLA with BC United and former Chief Counsel of Heisler as well, is that relationship now divergent? Uh, and what I mean by that is not that you're fighting, but you're just saying, look, uh, we're going our way and we're going to decide our, our thing. And uh, we've worked closely with the environmental movement. We may again, but we are going in separate paths here. Is there a fundamental di- divergence now from First Nations communities and environmental groups? I, mean, I can speak from from a Heisla perspective in in regards to that. And and definitely, if you've you've seen anything that I've I've put out as in as the chief counselor of the Heisla Nation or as the chair of the First Nations LNG Alliance, uh, you can definitely see a, a, a theme coming along where I refer to eco-colonialism hmm. uh, and and the fact that you know that I, I often uh, state that 
the sensationalism provided to those to to those groups uh, often give a perception that most indigenous communities are against development when in actual reality that that is quite the opposite. Uh, there there are many of our communities that support this development because it's 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 being done in a respectful, mm-hmm. uh, sustainable manner. And it is actually inclusive of our cultural values, whether it be along the pipeline, uh, directly where the terminal is being built, or al- along the shipping route. Uh, these projects have, have done an, a, a tremendous job of incorporating Indigenous values into how they are, are building their project and, and will operate their project. So in, in regards to... Uh, the divergence from from that conversation you know we need our our people deserve this opportunity our people deserve the opportunity to live the quality of life that every other canadian citizen has been provided for generations it is our time to to be a part of the solution it's a it's time that our communities are a part of the economies that operate in our territories, and and we will continue uh, to be supportive of the projects that we deem fit. And it's not from from an elective elected perspective. When when I sit here and speak about a, a a project such as LNG Canada, I sit here on behalf of two thousand Heisla members members that have ultimately given the mandate to our elected body to support the industry. Uh, so I would say that. I, I definitely do see uh, our communities wanting to be a part of the economies. We don't have a lot of time, uh, but one of the questions I did want to ask you uh, was uh, the fact that people say, look, uh, if we're going to power LNG, you need electricity. And the, the Premier has also brought up the issue of electrifying that region. Uh, uh, and Hydro has talked about needing more energy as well. You know, I listened to that. So that sounds good. Too bad they didn't bring that up a decade ago. But speak to me a little bit about electricity and the need to power these LNG facilities because they demand a lot of electricity. Do you hold out much hope for uh, Hydro and the government getting that region electrified as much as you need? I mean, LNG is just one one aspect of that conversation mm-hmm. in, in regards to powering. Uh, when you think about all the the other Indigenous communities that that are in northern British Columbia that see opportunity within their territories, whether it's by providing power to to BC Hydro or by using the power, uh, there are many opportunities uh, besides just LNG when it comes to uh, electrifying and essentially uh, creating opportunity uh, for Indigenous communities to be participants to to that economy. Uh, am I am I Hopeful that that it that it will take place. I I believe, it, like you had said, to start a decade ago, uh, there is a need. There is a huge need uh, when it comes to even some of our communities that still are powered by by other fuel fuel sources and, Diesel, and not provide right? yes, I mean, yes. It generators. It's appalling that here in British Columbia we're still having that conversation. Absolutely. So when, when you think about you know the the impacts and and the desire for indigenous communities to want to be more part of solutions when it comes to taking care of our environment uh that is a huge push in itself lng is just one one portion of the conversation when we're when we're talking about uh providing that power so 
it is it is required and and definitely looking forward to the to the conversations that that are, that do occur uh not only with with BC Hydro uh but with the province and as well as other indigenous communities Crystal Smith, we've run out of time. It's just, uh, we can fill a half an hour just like that. There you go. So thank you so much for coming in today. And I know you've got a really busy schedule. So thanks once again for, for uh, making some time for us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.